Good afternoon. Welcome to the seventh episode of the Broadcorp Report. I'm Michael Broadcorp here with Becky Allery. And we're recording, again, as I said, our seventh episode. I think this is the seventh different way we've done this. So <laughs> Every week's a little different. If you're listening at home uh, or you're listening wherever you are, the audio is going to sound a little different. Becky and I are committed very much to producing the best podcast uh, quality aside from content. And so we are trying, we are recording this remotely uh, using a program called uh, Riverside. Um, and so we're both doing this remotely. It's a busy snow day. And so the audio uh, might sound different than previous shows. Our goal is to have the audio sound this good every week. But so if, if you listen to the show and, and can give some feedback on the audio quality, that would be great. Uh, it's As always, Becky, it's great to have you here today. It's great to be here. And also a, a little disclaimer, I know you're home with, with kids there. I have a sick five-month-old down with my mom and the dog downstairs. So I also apologize if there's any, any background noise crying that may come through on this, but life is life. Life is life, and we're, we're committed to doing this at least once a week for the foreseeable future to, to get content, to produce stuff out, and, and have this discussion. So thanks. Thank you, Becky, and uh, for making time and getting this done. So let's start off this week. You want to take the lead? Talking yes. about... Uh, I think we need to talk about cinema out of Arizona. Big news this week of her leaving the Democratic Party um, and choosing to serve as an independent for the remainder of her term and running as an independent when she is up here in 2024. Um, now, I want to throw this one to you. You are clearly um, the, the Democrat sympathizer defender easy, here. Easy, easy, <laughs> easy. So why don't you maybe start out by telling us why you think cinema made this move and secondly, maybe how your new friends in the Democratic Party would respond. <laughs> wow. Um, so, you know, based on my understanding, what I've read and stuff, she, I mean, she is, this comes in the aftermath of Democrats winning uh, the Georgia U.S. Senate seat. So they, they picked up one from this past election cycle, uh, which is, you know, pretty unprecedented. And so what we have here now is cinema who has fallen into the kind of Joe Manchin wing of the Democratic Party, has always been someone inside the Democratic Party who has provided House uh, Senate Democrats some institutional governing uneasiness uh, where she is on votes and stuff. And so what she decided to do in the aftermath is make an announcement that she's going to register as a Democrat in the state of Arizona. Now, a couple things to note. There are currently uh, two Democrats that caucus, there are two independents in the United States Senate that currently caucus with the Democrats, uh, Angus King of Maine and uh, Bernie Sanders of Vermont. Obviously, different type of uh, independence. Cinema is trying to portray herself as not like in the socialist Democrat of Bernie Sanders, but as a true independent. Um, interesting response by the Democrats. Chuck Schumer um, didn't boot her out, didn't do anything to make her job difficult. Uh, they're going to let her keep her committee assignments. And then she's going to maintain her same role. But she's just really identifying herself differently in her home state of in her home state of Arizona. Now, I understand from a from a from a leadership perspective that Schumer's got some challenges on his hands. That being said, I can really kind of identify with her message, which I know is going to frustrate you. 
uh, Becky, but <laughs> she is, you know, she is making the decision and she wrote in, in an op-ed for the Arizona Republic, Americans are told that we have only two choices, Democrat or Republican, and that we must subscribe wholesale to policy views that the parties hold, views that have pulled us further and further towards extremism. She added this is a false choice. I agree with her. I mean, I think I have said on this show that it's a two-party system. And so I think going the independent route is not productive long-term. It's not a way to build and grow a party. Uh, and and you, you talked about that a little bit last time. And we both have, I think, an understanding of how the party parties operate and organize. And so having a third-party candidate and building a third party is very difficult. No, I mean, that that certainly seems to be the case. Do you think, um, I got a couple more questions for you here. Do you think that this was truly a principled stance for her? Or was the writing on the wall, the poll numbers show that, you know, she's not very well liked. Her approval rating is is pretty low. Uh, well, first of all, um, I want to make sure I'm keeping a good score charter. I don't know if I fully answered your first question, so we might need to revisit if I answered your full questions. But going back to your new questions, uh, absolutely politics is involved. I think that she, uh, I think that this is a, there's unique opportunities in Arizona versus versus Minnesota. You don't have to register in Minnesota, so there's no party registration. So the fact that cinema is able to do this, I think it's all about her ability to get reelected. Now, the question becomes is what do Democrats do in the state? Do they field a challenger against her? Um, uh, you know, there was a Utah Senate race. Um, Evan McMullen ran uh, against Mike Lee, United States Senator from Utah. Uh, Democrats decided not to field a challenger. So it was independent versus Republican. The question comes down is what do Democrats do? Do they field a challenger against cinema? Uh, so do they get a Democrat to run? And so the election could potentially be with a identified Democrat, an identified independent, and then an identified Republican. That's still up in the air as to what they do. But it certainly is a risky move. Now, there are a lot of people who believe that she's not running for re-election and she's trying to just message on her way out. But we'll see. You know, I think that one thing that really comes down to with this is the the role that activists have in in our political system. Um, you know, we've spent a lot of time maybe being critical of other Republican Party and activists and candidates. Um, no. A lot of people might remember last year when Democrat activists followed cinema into the bathroom. I mean, she was at an event literally trying to, you know, have one piece of privacy of the day and followed her in there and accosted her while she was in there. We've seen the same thing you mentioned, Manchin, you know, him witness, or dealing with some similar um, situations. So do you think that Democrat activists overplayed their hand, that they're to blame? And if so, do you think they're going to accept that and tone things down? Or do they t feel vindicated and this is where they're going to see seize their opportunity and put up a radical far-left candidate in that place? Because I don't think that if she runs again as an independent, they, they leave that ballot blank for the Democrats. I think it's probably both. I think you framed it up very well. I think that there, um, there's a lot of leaders. I mean, we have to remember this happened in the context of Democrats winning the seat in Georgia. So they had a buffer seat that they won. And so the opportunity that this presents is she has made it more difficult for, I mean, she in essence took the celebration on election night that Democrats had a couple weeks ago, and she put a damper on it. I mean, 
she brought she brought around a cloud to rain on their parade. I mean, they were excited and, and really overjoyed about having that one seat cushion. Um, and so she's made the Democrats' ability to govern in the Senate more difficult by every by every available factor. She's done that. Now she may still caucus with the Democrats. She may still vote with them on a more partisan way. But she did this for a reason. She made a conscious decision not to identify with the Demo- the Democratic caucus and as a member of the Democratic Party. So clearly she sees a benefit of that, at least short term. Uh, it's absolutely possible. So do I think that in part that some of those activists are to blame? Yeah, they were pretty rough on her. I mean, and I think what you're seeing is that Joe Manchin in West Virginia and Kristen Cinema in Arizona have different latitude by which to operate politically. And I think that for some reason... And I don't know the exact reason, but I think it's a it might be a good conversation down the road is to figure out why did cinema get more pressure uh, than Manchin did? Um, what were the factors there? Well, because they they both have struck up. I think since you know both were elected, uh, they've struck up a good relationship, a good professional relationship. They've been identified as kind of swing votes, focal points. Um, but a cinema uh, obviously felt the need to bolt now. I would say to you that I think based on her uh, persona uh, in Washington, I think she has she has more of an independent streak. I think she's shown to be somewhat of a trailblazer in style and in leadership and how she presents herself. Um, cinem- I think Mansion is a little bit, maybe a little bit more old fashioned, um, but we'll see. I mean, I think there's there's legitimate questions to ask as to why. Um, Mansion feels comfortable inside his party uh, to stay where he is, and Cinema felt the need to to bolt. Is it because of Cinema's decision or that type of pressure? But you, you correctly framed it up. You know, I think this kind of goes into a, another good topic to chat about is kind of the the general issues that are there are within the Democrat Party, within the Democrats here in Minnesota that we're going to probably see come to light with this trifecta up at the state capitol with, you know, one thing that comes to mind is when Trump was first uh, president and Republicans had majorities in the House and Senate and their attempt and failure to repeal Obamacare. Just because you have your party all in control doesn't make things easy by any means. And I think that we'll probably see some of those issues really come to a head here with the, the Walls administration and the Democrats here in Minnesota. But wanted to get your take on maybe what some of those issues are going to be. And, you know, again, you've got that your ear to the ground here with the Democrats, right? You're just really just needling, needling, needling. I mean, I just That's every every step of the way. Here. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the first issue that comes to mind as we shift to the, the legislative session is going to be um, where I think there's some differences on medical on on legalizing marijuana in the state. Um, I think that there is a there there seems to be some division inside the Democrats about the best approach and the way to do that. Um, I think Speaker Hortman. Um, has said that you know it. I don't think it's going to be happen right away, but it might happen in in the first in the first you know two years. Um, I think that there are a number of people inside the Democratic Party who want to see that focus. Uh, I think they want that to see that issue brought up immediately in the start of the legislative session. It is very. One would think that it would be very easy to govern when you when it's one party control. Um, it's actually quite difficult. Um, if you just look at it historically, because the stakes are much higher, um, 
because you control all the levers of government and it, and, it, and 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 the reality that you control all of the things makes people i think sometimes a greedy uh overly aggressive because they want they they view that this is this is their time in which to do it historically it doesn't happen very often um you know the, aside from as we've noted before that kind of brief time in 2012 we haven't had this type of elected uh, you know, start of the term in, in over 30 some years. And so it's significant that it's happening. Um, and the question becomes, uh, how do you manage it? And it's, sometimes it's tough. Yeah. You know, I think that sometimes too, it kind of comes down to those within that are, you know, the elected officials and the operatives that are working within the state capitol that do take po- the political side into into account and some of those idealists that maybe want to vote, you know, pragmatically for their party every single vote. You know, a lot of people do need to look and say, we do have another election in two years. Um, you know, the House is going to be up. We have to look towards what that might have to do with the presidential camp or, um, election here in Minnesota. So there are going to be some people that in within the Democrats that are working up at the state capitol that say, I know we want to get everything we want to do, but we got to stand up to these votes and make sure that we still have, you know, the majority of Minnesotans on our side. Um, So I think that that's where, you know, we'll see a little bit of that, you know, not always getting the entire wish list, right? Yeah. Are there issues you think that Democrats thinking that there's an election in two years, or do you think that there's some issues that they need to stay away from if they want to retain? Because in two years, we will have a United States Senate race in Minnesota, Amy Klobuchar will be up. We will have a presidential race in Minnesota, but the only legislative races will be the House. So, Yeah, you know, I think public safety is going to be really interesting to see how they navigate. I mean, we saw them go swing all the way far to defend the police. I think that there is are certainly some defend the police folks still within the Capitol. I don't think maybe it's as, as you know, the majority of the Democrats. I don't think that there's going to be anything of that matter. Um I mean, you read the news or watch the news any day and you can see that public safety is an issue. And if they hope to, you know, retain those, um, especially suburban women voters um, on their side for the foreseeable future, I I think they need to navigate that pretty, you know, it's a precarious little issue and and have to be a little um, timid about how they how they approach that and not swing too far left. So do you think so you think public safety is an issue that was brought up during the last election cycle. And the Democrats, you think, are self-aware of the fact that if they want to keep their majority, particularly in the House, that they need to they need to pass some form of some public safety measures, uh, probably on the enforcement side, to help keep, uh, to help, you know, uh, focus attention on a crime problem that is, is continually dominating the news. Your, your argument is that they need to focus on that right away. I don't know necessarily that they're going to focus on more enforcement. I think it's going to be one that we're going to see a uprising of some of these more vocal activists. It's where we're going to see that wedge being drawn, right? We're going to see some folks. I don't believe they're in the majority, but we're going to see a loud group of folks that come out still wanting to defend the police or, you know, abolish, you know, some of this safety, public safety system we have, and that it's going to be a wedge issue that we're going to see, um, and it's going to be interesting. Another one I really think is going to be interesting is kind of um, a lot of this stuff we have, you know, over the last couple of years of mining issue or mining pipeline, um, different uh, energy sources or, you know, energy 
transportation things come up in this state. And I think that one thing um, that Walls has gotten a lot of pressure is from those far left radical environment or, you know, quote unquote, environmentalists. So I think that was one that we're going to see probably a lot of noise around as well. And it will be, you know, people want to hold Walls's feet to the fire, especially because he does have the trifecta. Do you think it'll be harder for Walls to govern? Now, I mean, he's going to have the numbers on his side in a sense that He's going to um, be able to, you know, have an agenda, and it, and it should and it put it should pass with some success. But when you get into kind of the, the the kind of inner party fights, do you think that the fact that there is legislative majorities by the Democrats in both houses that that's going to push walls to the left or more to the right? You know, to be perfectly honest, I have no idea. Because I just don't think we've ever seen Walls. I mean, he's been able to ride the fence pretty successfully, both in his time in Washington and during, you know, his his elections and his first term here. Um, we should pause for a second. We're, since we're discussing the subject of Tim Walls, is there something you want to say? I mean, you're on his campaign committee. You should have that information. I endorsed him. That's all I was looking <laughs> for, okay? Because every time we discuss Governor Walls, you like there's like little macro that goes off and it's like and oh by the way michael you endorsed him so i just <laughs> wanted to pause for a second because I, I don't want anyone to think that oh i'm becoming they, too predictable yeah so i just wanted to pause for a second to make sure you got you got that dig in but but continue no i mean i i just think only time will tell but realistically i mean what is your take on that do you think we're gonna see him shift and be able to jump off that fence or is he gonna kind of take the safe road here I think just from if just the fact that he has legislative majorities in both the the House and the Senate, I think by definition, I think he's going to move to some degree to the left because the focus of the state has pivoted to the left. Before it was he was he was in between a Republican Senate and a DFL House. Now he's in he's in the in with a DFL Senate and a DFL House. So the governing agenda of the of the legislature has shifted to the left and in turn the fact it's the same party of the governor um i think that moves the kind of agenda of the governor it allows him i think more of an opportunity to uh focus on some progressive uh, issues that as i think i've mentioned before on the show i was a bit surprised about when when governor dayton left office and governor walls was elected I was surprised by the number of uh, progressive Democrats who expressed frustration at the time of the in terms of their progressive agenda wins that occurred under Governor Dayton. And so I think that a lot of Democrats have been looking for walls to to go advance more of those goals. And so I think that just by the numbers, since there's more Democrats than there were before, and the governor is of that same party, I think the agenda shifts to the to the left. That being said, I also don't. I also will say that, by all accounts, I mean Governor Walls hasn't announced that he's not seeking re-election. It's very very early. I'm not trying to sound like a weirdo by saying he hasn't announced, but he just got re-elected to a four-year term, and. I would have to believe that if he wants to run again, which we don't know that he is, that he's going to want to represent to Minnesotans the type of record that he's had, that he had in Congress down in the first, that he had during his first term, the type of record that can win him the support of principled independents and Republicans like myself. 
<laughs> oh, you're principal now. I yes, see. I, am. I see. Uh, yes. I mean, in my last comment on that is we also, I think, you know, have to acknowledge that there is a $17 billion surplus that these Democrats, you know, led by walls are going to be able to or, or planning to likely allocate all if or, you know, a majority, if not all of. And so I think that they're going That's to a lot be. Of money. It's a lot of money, and it's going to be very interesting to see where they place that. And and I assume a lot of people are going to be vocal when they're you know they don't get their piece of the pie. Becky Allery is governor, and you're in charge. What would you do with that budget surplus? Oh goodness, really put me on the spot here. I, I mean, you gotta you gotta you know replenish or have you know your savings right your rainy day fund. I think that is a big piece of this. I, I do stand a little behind the give it back, you know, give, give, got to give a portion of it back. Um, I think there is something to be said about that. Um, I know that there, you know, a lot of talk about education in particular, special education funding. I think there are some, some gaps there. I, I, you know, we'll, we'll come back to an education conversation at another time, um, but we can't just spend it all and to spend it all. Democrats tend to, though, have a good chance or have good ways of plugging this money in places that makes it really hard to take back, you know, when Republicans get control again. So, um, yeah. What about you? What about it, Governor Governor Broadcorp? That's a scary world. Uh, first of all, I think uh, it's yeah. hard. To, I think <laughs> nice. You, you didn't even waste any time on that. Um, I think it's harder to I think it's it's obviously harder to govern. Uh as a legislator uh, and as the governor, if you're in a budget deficit, we have, uh, but we're going to test the boundaries of that because we got, there's a lot of money here. There's a lot of money, a historical amount uh, uh, that we have from a budget surplus. So that's going to create, it's going to create opportunities. And I think a number of conflicts. Uh, If I was the governor, first of all, I would talk about structured substantive tax reform. Uh, That's a long-term discussion. Uh, you know, I, when I was somewhat critical during the governor's race to the way that Scott Jensen talked about, uh, reforming the, reforming the tax code and doing some things, some, I think it's fair to say somewhat critical. So I think that's a longer discussion about kind of reforming the tax code. Um, and I think now would be the good time in which to do that, but that's a long-term discussion. Um, I would like to see, so obviously I would like some to see state government take in less and, and, and have, uh, there not be the level of, of, of budget surpluses that we have. A couple of things uh, you know, that I would also focus on, and we can talk about this in future episodes. I've been uh, an advocate for um, increasing the sales tax on alcohol. Um, you know, uh, interest of full disclosure, those who follow me on social media know this, that I had a, a DWI crash uh, roughly 10 years ago. I've been volunteering my time over the last 10 years Um with an organization dealing with that. And one thing that I've learned is that there's a number of treatment facilities. There's a number of issues related to alcohol that I think our state could do better dealing with. And one thing Minnesota hasn't done in a very, very long time is raise the alcohol tax. And so it's difficult to talk about raising taxes um, at a time in which um, we have such a big surplus. But if there would be a way in which to reprioritize uh, some of the existing revenue that we have uh, and look at um, that and some way to help fund you know, treatment facilities, help fund law enforcement, help fund a number of public safety initiatives. Those would be the type of things that I would do. 
on principle, what you should do is you should just raise the alcohol tax. But again, when you're dealing with a seventeen you know billion dollar budget deficit, that's not realistic. It's never popular to raise taxes. That would be the cleanest way to do it. But things like that, I would focus on. But I think that this is a real opportunity for Minnesota to establish itself very forward thinking, to start thinking long term. And you can now, when you have a budget deficit like this, you can really start to not sit back, but you can really kind of just pause for a little bit and think about, are we running the state the best way? Are there ways in which we could be structuring uh, this uh, state government, how we're funding state government in a way that uh, positions Minnesota to be a hotbed of growth and economic development long term? You know, you guys hear, heard it here first. Uh, Michael Broadcorp wants to raise our taxes. So, um, you know, anytime he runs for office, just remember that you heard it here first. Uh, I will remind but, you, I will remind you that uh, you made some disclosures on the last show that are part of the file that I haven't quite yet highlighted. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I know. And so, and so if um, Becky Allery ever right. decides to seek the endorsement for a local legislative race, uh, your decision on who you would vote for in the state of Georgia is certainly in the files. Oh, so never. Yeah, well, by the way, I will tell you, I did get a phone call about that from one of our listeners, which we can talk about off air. Someone did call me and say, probably the most surprising thing I heard the last episode would Becky admit that if she was down in Georgia, she wouldn't have voted for Herschel Walker. Wow. Certainly more surprising than any admission I've made, but we can All talk right. about that there. Um, well, I think we're, we're <laughs> running up against the clock here. We'll go into our third topic of the day. Um, if you want to maybe kick things off here. Well, we had a, a story this week that developed. We had an incoming state legislator by the name of Walter Hudson. Uh, and the interest of disclosure, I know Walter. I've met him uh, multiple times. Um, he was recently elected to the ele- newly freshman elected member of the legislature. Uh, he was uh, speaking at an event uh, at a was on a panel at a mask off event, uh, mask off Minnesota event in Bloomington, and he he made the following comments. Um, he said, "Quote the plantation owner who said, quote, I need cotton, and you're going to pick it." is morally equivalent to the person who says today, I don't want you to get sick, so you have to take the jab. Walter Hudson is a newly elected member of the legislature, African-American. He made, and he has been very vocal prior to getting elected to the legislature. Um, In every available platform, he's been very critical of COVID mandates, um, requirements of any vaccination. And how I described it, on social media was that, you know, Hudson was engaging in a little bit of Scott Jensen 2.0 and, you know, Hudson, I, Walter Hudson, who, who I've listened to on the radio uh, and is someone who I think is certainly going to, he is, I, I guarantee you the people of his legislative district, independent of where Hudson, Walter Hudson is on the issues, the people of that legislative district uh, have elected someone who I think is, going to bring a lot of depth to his legislative district. You're going to see a guy who's probably going to read nearly every bill. He's going to outwork and probably outhustle a lot of legislators just in terms of his depth and understanding of the issues. Now, I disagree with them on his message, but um, this is but but Walter is is certainly going to not uh, sit uh, as, you know, there's 134 members of the legislature in the House. 
I don't think Walter is going to be uh, a quiet member. And I think that the legislature would be, if everyone spoke up as loud as I think he's going to speak up, I think it'd be a better place. I completely and utterly disagree with his message. Um, I think it's bad for Republicans statewide. Um, I think Walter has other agendas, which I'll get to, uh, but I want to turn it over to you. Yeah, you know, I agree. I think Walter is, in large, super smart, great messenger most of the time. Um, And I think this kind of, we've talked probably almost every episode about Republicans' issue with lack of message discipline. Um, You know, I, I know that Republicans since COVID, you know, hit and the mask mandates, excuse me, vaccine mandates and overall policies have really run up against the wall a little bit uh, with with some issues here. Um, You know, my time at the party, I will say we had more than one conference call talking about um, do not compare mask mandates, vaccine mandates to the Holocaust or slavery. Nothing is as bad. Nothing will be as bad. Um, It's just simply not comparable. Those, you know, analogies are unacceptable in my view. And it's really just unfortunate because, again, when you have some folks that are good messengers in general, do have, you know, a point that they are trying to make that just completely, regardless of what the point is, just detracts from anything. And it's just a distraction. And I think this is, again, what we saw in the Jensen campaign with, you know, talking maybe about furries instead of, you know, tax policy. I think that when we have that lack of discipline and those issues, it just really discredits, um, you know, an individual and the party as a whole at times. I would agree. I think the the question becomes, and, and we get back to this, and, you know, I think that for some reason, I I guess I know why, but I just want to just lay, lay it out that way. I think that COVID, the pol- COVID too, was much more of a partisan issue to Republicans than it was Democrats. I think that it has lingered farther inside the Republican Party than it has the Democratic Party. Um, I think that Republicans have politicized the politics of the the pandemic and COVID-19 and they have allowed it to, for lack of a better phrase, infect the party and become a problem. I think there are a number of Republicans who have been, who went through the lockdown, went through uh, the pandemic and fundamentally it has reframed and rewired them about how they think about politics in ways, in ways that as a Republican, I struggle with um, to to think that someone could equate slavery um, to getting a vaccine is I understand the words that were used, but that type of mental gymnastics is quite easy right now inside the Republican Party. And my concern with it, and I raised this long before um, we had this podcast, was about just general messaging. I mean, the vast majority of Minnesotans have been vaccinated. Um, according to the most recent data, 72% of Minnesotans have at least one vaccine. The complete vaccine series, roughly 67, almost 68% of Minnesotans have that. So my argument months ago, months and months ago, uh, probably close to a year ago, was why are Republicans so focused on messaging to the smaller number? Um, why are they so focused on that? And my concern is, is that we're continually messaging, not to the majority, but we're messaging to the minority and Republicans need to be framing up their message different. 
We'll we'll have to wait and see if if our if our fellow elected Republicans and candidates coming up will hopefully be a little bit more disciplined. But um, I think we're kind of time is up. I think we last of the day. Do we want to? You have a tweet of the week. I've got I've got one that's actually more of a yours than mine. You, you go first. You go first. All right. So um, starting out, I got to share your tweet to for a frame of reference. You tweeted yesterday, hot take from a source. Between Thursday, Friday, and last night, there have been three Republican conservative Christmas parties. Scott Jensen has shown up to all three. People want to grieve together among family and friends, but the murderer keeps showing up at the wake, which was a pretty good tweet of the week, I got to say. Yes. Um, you got a response by somebody, Christy83982631, so take that for what it's worth, who said, you're a jerk. Now, that's not the tweet of it in itself, but that she spelt it Y-O-U-R, and that you then came back and corrected her spelling on that. Um, you know, the whole thing just kind of cracked me up, so I appreciate you playing grammar police there. So I think that I think that's a perfect way to end the show because I think it's both of ours as tweet of the week, uh, and I think that's fun. Um, that's a great way to end it. You're at Twitter at the best way for people to reach you is Allery RL on Twitter, and I'm at Adam Broadcorb. And we want to thank everyone for listening. Again, give us some feedback after the show when this is recorded, either when we post it on social media or at our Twitter accounts directly on sound quality and other things. Because uh, we're, we're trying to do as, as best we can and produce a quality show every week. So thanks so much, and we'll talk to you again next week. Have a great day. Bye.